Welcome to the Words Matter podcast, enhancing patient care through better communication. Welcome to another episode of the Words Matter podcast. I'm Oliver Thompson. And in this episode of the Clinical Reasoning series, I'm speaking with Sanya Maritic. Sanya is an osteopath who works in a non-traditional osteopathic role as a pain clinician in the pain management services in East Lincolnshire in the UK. Sanya has a background in humanities and a passion for the intersection between healthcare and humanities. And with that, she published a qualitative study titled Understanding Patients' Narratives, a qualitative study of osteopathic educators' opinions about using medical humanities in osteopathic education. And that was published in 2021, and I've linked the paper in the show notes. And Sanya also wrote a truly captivating review for the Course Health book, which I've also linked in the show notes. So in this episode, we speak about narrative-based practice and the role and function of narratives in the care of people. We speak about structural competency as a framework to appreciate the complex social contexts and structures which guide people's health, their illness and recovery. We speak about how hearing our patients' narratives enables us to know and see them, their social structures surrounding their lives and environment. We talk about how narrative analysis can be used to think critically about our practice and the narratives which surround our clinical realities. We talk about how incorporating the arts, poetry and humanities into healthcare education will help widen the therapeutic gaze of clinicians beyond the mere biomedical. And we talk about Sanya's experience of journeying and finding her way into a multidisciplinary pain setting. And finally we speak about the notion of listening with hands in relation to touch and palpation in manual therapy and how this may or may not facilitate the construction and understanding of a person's narrative and life world. So this was such a wonderful conversation. Sanya speaks truly as a clinician in the way she passionately describes her work and her endeavour to better understand the lives of those people that she cares for. So I bring you Sanya Maritich. Sanya, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. So we're going to speak probably about a whole collection of different topics, one of which is narrative, we're going to call it narrative medicine or narrative-based medicine for the purpose of our conversation, but really it's about being interested in more than just the kind of diagnostic labels or symptom presentations of people that are, are suffering, but also your experience as a pain clinician. And you're going to hopefully share your experiences of, of how narratives and narrative thinking and narrative reasoning, and we're going to go through perhaps some of the difference between the terms, how that comes into your clinical practice. So before we go into all of that stuff, or none of that stuff, why don't you introduce yourself, your clinical and professional background? 
Yeah, sure. So um, I'm Sanya Maratic and I am based in East Lincolnshire where I work in a community pain management service where I work with people who experience persistent and complex pain. Um, my work is largely oriented around uh, individual pain rehabilitation, but I also do group programs as well. I have a background in humanities, more specifically in comparative literature, which is a really big love of mine and something that I do carry with me in pretty much everything I do in my life and especially my work. And this really kind of forms the basis around which my main interests lie, which is this intersection between humanities, medical humanities, narrative medicine as a very unique and critical branch of medical humanities and healthcare, in my case, pain care. And between narrative and narrative thinking, narrativity and, and health and social justice. So these are the kind of questions that drive me forward. I also just want to say, Oliver, that um, I'm not a researcher. I am not presenting my PhD here. Uh, I certainly have research aspirations and uh, I have I occasionally participate in a research activity. But at, at this stage of my life, I am a, a, a clinician Monday to Friday. So everything I share with you today is a, a, a like a first person ethnographic account and fieldwork experience um, with a lot of passion for the subject. So people can take me with a pinch of salt. <laughs> I think, I mean, you not saying you're a researcher, it's a bit like when I spoke with Peter Stilwell about whether he's a philosopher and when you become a philosopher and you know, you've published research, I'm sure, I'm sure publishing research and I'm going to mention your paper, which was understanding patients' narratives, a qualitative study, phosphoric <laughs> educators, their opinions about using medical humanities and poetry in education. So you've done research. So certainly you, you've, uh, you, you, you meet one, one of the attributes, but, but so we, I mean, on that, we, we obviously know each other through your aesthetic education, but, you know, knowing how you've changed since then and knowing your interests now, it does strike me how you came into osteopathy. Like osteopathy is a, on the face of it, a profession which is largely interested in kind of bits of bodies and how they fit together and how they work together. But your interests span, as you said, far beyond the kind of corporeal, kind of body-centered practice of osteopathy. Yeah. Um, oh gosh, I feel like um, if I start talking about how I ended up in osteopathy, we're going to, you know, completely um, deroute from the topic, but it was a kind of an accidental thing, really. But I, I think it's not really that different to my background because it, it really all comes down to the act of giving and receiving stories. So, I have really, I have always been interested in pain from a very early on in my osteopathic education. And uh, as somebody who spent most of my life up until that point, reading people's stories for living and attending to the works of art, especially written art in my case, you develop a certain ability to pay attention and certain ability to kind of turn on your senses when you're attending to somebody else's experience. So when I, when I started doing my, my placement in osteopathy, and I was also working all throughout my studies, it was really puzzling me. Why, why are we not believing people who experience persistent pain? Why are they not being believed for their, for what they're saying? You know, why are we questioning the integrity of their experience? What, what is wrong with us? So 
it really was this element of kind of social injustice that was really speaking to me. So when I, when I finished my osteopathic education, I was kind of a little bit on a mission to find myself away into the, into the pain service. But how I went from humanities into osteopathy, that was a kind of, there were a lot of personal um, aspects to that story. When I moved countries, I'm originally from Croatia and I, you know, I kind of, um, I don't, every time somebody asks me this, I don't really have a logical answer because it just happened. It was kind of like intuitive thing. I, I remember thinking between physiotherapy, osteopathy, but physiotherapy was a little bit more difficult to get into, you know, with my um, Croatian education. And I'm, I'm not really like the most patient person. So I went into osteopathy and um, yeah, kind of found my way, found my place in, in osteopathy and wider so, so let's let's launch into to narratives and narrative thinking and narrative medicine. And I mean, let's think. Where's a good place to start? I mean, I suppose firstly, the word narrative is so so. I want to say overused or well used. It's it's pretty much gone to the point now where it's used to convey any effort by clinicians to kind of move beyond listening to patients just reciting their physical symptoms. It, so I just, you know, I'm not saying it's cliched, but there's, I mean, you just, it's a bit like lived experience. It's a term which seemed to speak to, to so many, but now just seems to be used to explain things which don't necessarily represent its, its true meaning or its, or its original meaning. Is that, is that fair? I mean, if you stick narrative in any piece of writing around clinical care, <laughs> The thought is it just lifts the, it lifts the piece beyond <laughs> just kind of biomedicalism. Yeah, no, I think, I think you're right. I think we definitely have developed a shared vocabulary. Um, you can see that on Twitter. Mm -hmm. You know, we all talk about narratives and listening to patient narratives. And um, it's, it's a really big question, what is a narrative? Because it also depends who are you talking to. So whether you are talking to, um, I don't know, anthropologist or sociologist or um, psychologist or a literary scholar who has a James Joyce novel in front of them, they may all have slightly different answers to what is a narrative and what is a story and what are the nuances in between because these are all narratively informed ways of knowing and narratively informed ways of seeing the world. I have a particular bias in terms of how I perceive narratives because I, so I'm, I'm not trained in social sciences, but I, my background is in humanities and my humanities education in my home country was very socially grounded. So I grew up reading um, Croatian literature, Latino, Latina literature, and the history of their literature is a history of fight for human rights. So my view of narrative is very, very socially grounded. And I also have done a couple of courses with, um, in narrative medicine, and for people who don't know, narrative medicine is a, a, a interdisciplinary field that is combining the, we, the, the world of humanities and world of healthcare. And it was pioneered by Dr. Rita Sharon in Columbia Medical School in America, I think in 2000. So a lot of my values are aligned um, with their practices and, and principles. So <laughs> what is a narrative? I think I think generally speaking, narratives are some kind of social construct that have something to do with meaning, that are always situated in a, in a particular historical moment in time and space. 
So we can talk about narratives on a more personal level and on a more societal level. And I'm going to use the term stories and narratives interchangeably here just to keep things simple. So on a more personal level, narratives are how one person sees themselves in the world and how they interpret, make meaning, ascribe values to things that happen to them in their life. So these are not like a factual truths about the world, but they kind of are the truth because they become the organizing principle by which that person or a community or a whole society ends up living their life. So, you know, I, I'm here now telling you my narrative about, <laughs> about the narrative, and this is certainly not some kind of truth about the world or how to be in a clinical practice. But this, this story is my truth because it fully informs how I live my life, how I do my clinical practice, how I work with patients, how I do relationships in my life. So it makes me into who I am. So I guess what I'm, what I'm, what I'm thinking is that there's the narrative which develops from clinical interaction. So you call narratives a social construct and you're right. They're not just, you know, if you're a clinician and you're interested in the patient's story or narrative, what you don't do, you don't just kind of plug in your USB hard drive and download that and you get that in a raw form. But the narrative which which kind of follows that person throughout their lives, they don't just deliver it on a plate to the clinician that it's then yeah. re-articulated, reconstructed by the clinician and the patient through that social interaction. So I suppose getting to getting back to narratives and what they are, we don't obviously see narratives walking down the street, right? That they are figments of people's social interaction. So thinking clinically and how how a clinician might get hold of a narrative or come into contact with a narrative, like how do you, where do you find them? I mean, it's clearly, I'm, I don't mean you can find them, but how do they appear? How do they come into to, to existence through clinical interaction? Yeah, um, so <laughs> that's a great question. So they, so they are ab absolutely relational, and this is the one thing I really want to emphasize: that um, narratives are relational, uh, and this is how we meet each other in the middle. I suppose you and me are now constructing some kind of narrative, and I'm telling you my story, my narrative. But you came to this podcast with a with a story, with a narrative. Yeah, but it's now and, and you potentially becoming something else as we even talk about it. Or at least yes, it's, if you it's, listen, it's presented if you something else. To, yeah, if, if you... Um, no, no. <laughs> so this is a key, I think. It, it's it's listening and I, I really want to <laughs> really touch on that. <laughs> but um, it's about... Um, I'm now telling you my story, yes, and you can't fully understand my story just by looking into me. Like you would also have to understand my background, my education, my cultural background, my parents, my upbringing. And, and this is really, really important to emphasize because I think here in the global north, we have a very individualistic way of thinking and framing things. And when it comes to narrative thinking, it really is intrapersonal as well as intrapersonal and also systemic and structural. And I think this is the bit we're sometimes missing. You know, we can also talk about narratives on a, on a societal level, narratives within which our lives are embedded, your life and my life. If we look at the news right now, if we look at everything that's going on in the world, we can all recognize that we're all living within this almost like a 
racial capitalism narrative. You know, we, we, are, we are all living, our lives are embedded within it. And we enact this narrative by the use of language, as your podcast says, words do matter, but also by the absence of language, also by the, you know, symbols and rituals and bodies, because these are all narrative tools in a way. So what I'm trying to say is that social conditions of our lives, such as capitalism and, you know, misogyny, sexism, racism, they all manifest themselves narratively. You know, you, you can, you know, I, I have a background in, in literature. So when I, when I approach a book, when I read a book, I ask myself certain questions, questions such as, who tells a story? Who is the I who tells a story? And who is a story being told to? Who is portrayed as a hero and who is portrayed as a villain? Who's looking and who's being looked at? And these questions you see are not just questions of literary imagination. These are the questions of our realities. You can approach, you know, you, you can do this narrative analysis in your clinical practice. You can sit on a train tomorrow and do this analysis. We can look at the... Um, in a more into news <laughs> and look at something like herd immunity. You know, that is a narrative, a really dangerous one, because we can ask ourselves, who does that narrative privilege and who does that narrative silence? What about people who are structurally vulnerable? Under which gaze that narrative has been constructed? Are we talking about elitist gaze, you know, bourgeois gaze, cisgender gaze, white gaze. So who makes the rules and who are the, who are the rules being made for? We can go on and on and on about this. I, mean, I think what you're saying there is that kind of the narratives, like they're, va- they're not value free, right? That these values, they come from somewhere or they're, they're from a certain position. You, you, as you said, who do they exclude? Well, they exclude the people who probably aren't setting the narrative, right? So they are, or at least aren't involved in the construction of the narrative. So, so they are, invariably biased i mean they are by their very nature they're adopting a certain position and favoring that position or favoring that lens over any other lens Mm, yeah you know they are absolutely absolutely ever present and i think you know understanding you know i i suppose approaching the the world narratively i i think it matters because because we work with people and we don't work with tissues and those people have their internal narratives and the way they make sense of the world and of themselves. And also we are all part of the, the, the wider narratives. We're not living in a biological vacuums or a psychological vacuums and understanding that relationship between the individuals and the environment on a, you know, individual community, society, you know, neighborhoods, city level, I think it's really important. Certainly thinking about the function of narratives, at least on a clinical level, and we just got to kind of, I want to ground this in just people in practice every day, trying to help other people in a professional clinical sense. The, the function and value there is that the narratives capture or portray more than, as you said, just the state of the tissues or the symptomatology of the person they give us something more. They give us yeah. something richer. Yeah, I think, uh, you, you know, absolutely. I think uh, they are. So to me, first of all, I, I don't even like the word reasoning because to me, narrative thinking is not just about some uh, intellectual approach to clinical practice. I also think this transcends clinical practice. 
Because as human beings, we're not just people, you know, cr uh, creatures of intellect, we're not just rational human beings. We are also creatures of emotion, affect, spirits, whatever that, that means to, to, you know, different people. And to me, this approach is, a, an, you know, acknowledging all of that. And it's a more like an embodied practice, really. And, and you know, when I'm when I'm stepping into that situation, I'm bringing myself also as a, as a human being into that with my own narrative. To answer the second part of your question, yes, people have their own life worlds, you know, in a more phenomenological, I, I, I suppose, sense. And, and it's, it's, they, they relate to that life world in an ideological, phenomenological, you know, emotional sense, political sense. And this is where their life lies. Uh, and it makes sense to me that we that we attend to that. Now, this all really comes, you know, when it comes to the doing bits, how do we do these things that sound so clever? I think it really comes down to listening. And when I say listening, you know, this doesn't just mean being nice to people or being, you know, being quiet. It really means equipping our frames of, of listening with tools so we are better able to hear stories of people who perhaps don't look like us, who perhaps don't talk like us, don't think like us, don't experience the world and don't experience their bodies like us. So this, to me, this really comes down to that listening, which I can talk a lot about. But maybe before we get to that, I just want to situate narrative, situate that, I suppose, in the current discourse which is less current now, but you know, things at like the biopsychosocial model and um, being attuned to factors beyond kind of biomedical or physical. And I suppose, you know, narratives offer a way because people will say, well, there are other ways to apprehend these things. There are other kind of theoretical frameworks that we spoke about in the podcast, which give, provide some kind of landscape, but where to see these social factors, for example, which seem to be determinant on health or recovery or suffering. So I, I suppose what I'm trying to get at is as a vehicle to, to kind of deliver these to the clinician's gaze and they can then begin to intervene is too one-sided, but work with them or work with a patient. That's a function of the narrative. If within that narrative, there's stuff around um, bereavement and divorce and these are social you would some would say these are social factors which determine how people will respond to treatments or recover from certain certain ailments so so is there some kind of slick connection we can make between kind of biopsychosocial practice and narrative practice too is there some kind of linkage there oh you know in my eyes absolutely I think that especially when it comes to the social aspect, to the biopsychosocial, so I don't even like to um, separate all three things because they really are just one thing. I do think that in our professions, meaning, you know, allied healthcare, especially osteopathy and physiotherapy, we, we can be quite, we can pay quite the lip service to the social in the biopsychosocial. So when I talk about narrative from my point of view, I really mean understanding the environment in a more structural sense. I think I think we use the word environment, but we don't always really know what do we mean by that, or we don't really analyze it in a structural way. We divorce the environment from a socio-political features of environment, which is structural in a way. I think you're getting to how it looks for you, how it plays out. 
Yeah, so I can tell you how it looks like for, for me because this is going to look differently for e each individual. And for me, you know, this narrative approach to clinical practice is a combination of different elements. It's a combination of that phenomenological and ethnographic approach that we have already touched on, fortified by something called structural competency from a position of narrative humility. So phenomenological ethnographic approach really means, you know, what do you think is happening? How do you envisage your way forward? Uh, you know, what do you think is the possibility here? And th this sounds really simple, but we often, we often don't, don't ask these questions and we don't take this into consideration. And of course, this isn't just about um, verbal accounts and what people say. Uh, and I work in a chronic pain service, so this is really important to, to me to understand that it's not just about words. This is also about symbolic expression. It's about general health. It's about body language. It's about looking people's eyes and all these different things. So it's certainly not just about words because not everybody's verbal. And also English language is not the only language in which people communicate meaning. Okay, so you mentioned, uh, just want to backtrack, you mentioned a couple of terms, structural competency and narrative humility. Can you expand on those ideas or those terms a bit more? Yeah, sure. So I do think structural competency is a huge missing element in our in how we teach our students and how we work in clinical practice. Structural competency is a reasonably novel framework developed by Dr. Jonathan Metzl and, and Dr. Helena Henson. And they kind of expanded this more familiar term, cultural competency, into structural competency. And I'm simply just applying their work into my job. Um, this is something I have been educating myself about and I have been reading about this. And this is really where I am in my in my career right now. So I probably have more questions than answers. A structural competency is a capacity of practitioners to recognize and respond to the ways in which broad social, political, and economic structures contribute to the vulnerability and ill health of, um, of individuals and communities. So in other words, structural competency is about understanding that our environment is comprised of structures and all of people sit somewhere on those social hierarchies and those structures. And by structures, I mean things like institutions, uh, educational system, healthcare system, family organizations, et cetera, et cetera. So structural competency is about seeing people. And by seeing, I mean being able to discern what structural and social factors are, are playing a role in this person's health and illness and pain. It's about understanding that people are not just depressed. They aren't just, you know, weird or psychosocial or fat by choice or malingerers or non-compliant, that there may be real structural barriers getting in the way of this person, uh, person's recovery and, and, and from their flourishing in life. And so I think it comes back to the kind of what is narrative thinking practice look like. But an example might be there is that structural competency would both enable you to be sensitive to listen out for these, these things, for example, when they pop up in conversation with patients you're because if you don't know it exists you don't know what you're listening out for but moreover i suppose a question would be would you deliberately explore these so you know them in your head you know that there are these structures which people are born into and which can determine whether or not people 
get well, get sick, are poor. So you can either both kind of use use structural competency as a lens to begin to kind of digest some of that information coming from the patient, but you might use it as a framework to to guide some of your inquiry or case history taking or question and questions towards the patient. Is that fair? Yeah. So it it is really about paying attention on people's language, on people's level of health literacy. I think the problem is we're not used to asking people these questions. We're not taught in our education to ask about food food supply or housing issues, or we're not taught to ask about transportation issues. But these things do come up in when, you know, in people's stories. So it's about recognizing what's potentially getting in the way before we say, oh yes, go home and do exercises. They may not have access to the gym or just go home and, you know, go and have organic food. They may not have access to organic food. They may not have access to any healthy foods. So it's about recognizing again, what's getting in the way. And as healthcare professionals, we have a range of interventions, let's call them, at our disposal. And really engaging with someone's narrative, creating with them, kind of relishing the, the, the structures which surround that narrative and those which produce it, just gives you a better idea about what treatments to offer patients. I mean, if we just bring it back, like, just know the patient better and therefore can make some judgment about, well, I've got this incredible kind of purchase now on this person's life and their life story, their narrative. I think this treatment will work. And you go to the guidelines and you pull out whatever, manual therapy or CBT or I'm being slightly facetious, but because obviously the act of, of engaging the narrative and listening is going to have its own contextual and relational effects like any good talking therapy would, any good, you know, exchange of, of views and listening. But I suppose I'm coming back to your role as a pain clinician. Does that just give you some insight into your into into which sorts of treatments might be suitable for this particular person? Yeah, I mean, I mean absolutely. I think when I work with people, um, especially within my role and in the context in which I work, it really all comes down to listening. It comes down to understanding how life is for people day by day. Then whatever we end up doing, whatever we, un- we end up creating, constructing, um, has that contextual relevance and it's sensitive to that person's, to that, to that individual's context. I'm just reflecting the course health guys and girls, they would say, through that sharing of stories, you can begin to get some sense of the dispositions which might have led to that person becoming unwell, and then you can make some judgment about treatment. So I'm just trying to see the the function beyond understanding that person for the sake of understanding that person. What other functions does it serve? It really is about, it's about being aware and it's about understanding that, um, Okay, so listening to me is about two things and why, and, and, and this is why I think this truly matters. And it, it really isn't about interventioning people. It isn't about being just nice to people or being just kind and being quiet. It's about A, equipping our frames of listening with tools so we can better understand stories of those who don't look like us, who don't speak like us, don't think like us, don't experience the world like us. 
And B, listening is about transformative action. And I, I will come back to this. Now, you know, we, we can, as clinicians, as people, we can only live the life we are living. And we often tend to see the world through our tiny little gaze that is often informed by medical textbooks in which, you know, everybody, nobody has a disability, everybody is white, everybody is cisgendered, um, you know, everybody's thin. But in reality, this doesn't look like this. We are working with people from different backgrounds, different cultures, different languages, different experiences. So we have to be able to honor and encounter this, this otherness. To me, this is really, you know, the, the, the deep bone of our work. And I don't think we are always very good in, in appreciating the role of difference, the role of difference in this life, that we are not really all the same. We are not all in the same boat. If I'm working with somebody who has intellectual disabilities, learning disabilities, I have the shared humanity with that person. I have the shared needs, but with a differential kind of expression to it. I don't need the same care package as that person because I don't, I don't have learning disabilities. And I have to be able to acknowledge and recognize that if I'm working with somebody who has fibromyalgia or any other invisible disabilities, I have to be able to, I have to understand that the, the way I, as somebody who doesn't have that, to go on about negotiating public spaces in society may look very different to how that person does that. So this is really where, why listening matters. So we can, um, we can honor, appreciate and recognize this so we don't end up applying our own biases, our own ways of what's normal and how things should be onto other people. So with that, maybe we get to the listening bit and how, I guess, what it is and what we're listening for and how it's different to maybe we were taught to listen as, as clinical students. And I suppose with that, that, you know, when you describe the, the sorts of ways that you're understanding patients, people, that's laden with some theory too. And, and so I'm just conscious of clinicians that haven't got that, perhaps that broader understanding of the kind of social philosophical background of listening and people and how do you how do you start so people that generally want to to pay attention to this how would they start listening where would they direct their ear your question is really much uh, my question because i think this is really the problem i think this is where the education really needs to change i think this is where we have to introduce humanity, social sciences, philosophy in education. This is why we have to be inviting literary scholars, you know, uh, patient advocates, disability activists to teach at educational institutions, because otherwise we end up, we really do end up treating people in a biological vacuums. And this is just not what's, what's happening. It, it really is about awareness. And if your education didn't cover that, I think it's really on us to educate ourselves. So, you know, if you read, read psychology research, read humanities, read, read poetry, poem is a complex system. And if you are a white person, read some, something from somebody who's brown, who's black, read about intellectual disabilities, read about, you know, go to conferences where, where patient advocates speak. You know, I think we, I mean, there's a loss of responsibility here, but I do think this is a huge part of our work, this awareness. But I think it does need to change. For, it, it needs to be introduced in education. Yeah, if you think about active listening and kind of therapeutic listening, it's, 
it's obviously remaining engaged with the person, reflecting back, using their own words to, to kind of sum up th- those sorts of skills. But what you're talking about is quite different, or at least the setting's quite different. I'm sure you use them, those, those methods, but I suppose a theoretical kind of container by which you're using those skills are quite different. As you said, engaging in humanities, poetry, a whole range of other knowledge types to incorporate those skills. Yeah, I, I, you know, I, I don't really have any, I think this is where when we talk about listening, we often talk about it from a very interventional point of view. And I think this is beautifully represented on Twitter and social media where, you know, we know if we are quiet, then the pay, you know, there will be better patient outcomes if we listen to our patients. So this is kind of talking about listening from a very interventionist point of view. And I'm not talking about interventioning people here. I'm talking about accountability. I'm talking about authentic care. I'm talking about vulnerability and shared responsibility. And this is another aspect to listening that, you know, if, if we truly allow ourselves to listen to somebody else's story, we may even be moved and touched by what we may hear. And if we allow ourselves to do that, then we maybe even want to do something about it. So listening is really, there's nothing passive about listening. To me, listening is about transformative action. And there's element of vulnerability here because you may as well be changed in that process. I I do think that, um, you know, our education needs to change. Um, when it comes to this. And of course, I'm very much biased because I've done a couple of narrative medicine courses and this is kind of, this is the main heartbeat of their work. So they are famous for doing these workshops in which uh, people, you know, they gather in a, in a group setting and they attend to a third object, which is, which is often a piece of art or a social piece or philosophical piece. And then they, you know, through the practices of close reading and close looking, they, they develop this discipline and practice of listening, which I know we don't really do in education, but this is just one way of doing it. But I do think that awareness is number one. I think we need to, to educate ourselves better. <laughs> But I, and I guess I'm going to I'm going to labour the point about the education or our point or I, I know it's something you care about deeply too is that that the shift in healthcare education is thinking oh listening is important beyond kind of physical interventions or hands on we'll just add more listening skills there's a module now called listening skills for example on our okay. healthcare curriculum and there isn't I'm just being uh, hypothet- <laughs> hypothetically like, oh, but changed. you can imagine. <laughs> Exactly. No, there's still no listening skills, but you know, you'd think, okay, um, as a, as an educator, as a curriculum designer, you might be like, right, you know, you know, listening is a good thing. Like we should be doing more listening. So we'll just do some listening skills. And I suppose I'm just looking, looking for you to labor the point about why isn't just, as you said, just being quiet or just asking more questions because you want to listen to those answers. But uh, it, it comes back to where the gaze is to the listener that it's not that the the current kind of healthcare education may not be set up for students to jump into narrative-based listening. Yeah, I, I, I do think there's a difference between listening and actually hearing. And and this is where our, our listening frames have a huge role to play. And, and um, it really comes down to our own frames of listening. So how do we hear the stories that, you know, that we listen to? And this is why I think it's so important to be able to acknowledge our own 
prejudices. So, you know, what are we bringing into that social situation of a clinical encounter? What prejudices, what penalties, what what privileges, you know, what assumptions are we making about people before we have even heard them talking? Maybe at this point, Annie, you said how it seems for you, and but I just wonder, I'm curious to know like what it looks like. Or if I got you in a room listening to a patient, someone else in a room listening to a patient, one's doing your, your active listening, the way that you listen with theory and humanities, person next door is kind of doing, I don't know, standard healthcare listening, validating, reflecting, summarizing. I suppose it, it clearly, it looks the same. I'm guessing, sorry, I answered the question for you, but what, what might be the difference or what? Yeah, I, I, I don't really, I don't claim that I'm some perfect listener or anything like that. This is something that I'm also in the process of learning and educating myself. I guess I, I'm going to give you actually an example here. So with my, you know, I've, I recently moved from London to Lincolnshire because of my, my um, recent job. And uh, I used to live in a very affluent part of London. And then I suddenly moved to East Lincolnshire, which is much more rural, much more deprived, much more bereft of resources. And I came across many people who are structurally vulnerable. And by structural vulnerability, I mean people who may be vulnerable and may be subject to ill health simply by their, um, by the virtue of their position in society. So I, in my work, I came across people who are structurally vulnerable in terms of the poor health literacy, in terms of the immigrant statuses, in terms of poverty. So when I came into that social setting, I needed to understand my patient demographic if I want to do any meaningful work. And I had to ask myself certain questions such as, you know, what does pain management mean in this context? What does acceptance and commitment therapy mean in this context? What does uh, the phrase flourishing alongside pain mean in this part of the country where flourishing is somewhat less possible because some people live beneath the basic level of human dignity? So this is what I mean by listening. It's about educating yourself about patient demographic you, demographics you are really working with. I mean, I could tell you stories about this, you know, uh, the, the, the populations I'm, I'm working with. I feel very privileged of being able to work with these people and understand them closely. And uh, I mean, in some of the parts of this county, you know, the closest hospital is three hours away, you know, and, and this is if the bus shows up. Now, this is a social determinant of health for that person. And if I don't really understand this, if I don't see this, I think I'm a little bit in denial as a clinician. And I may be even part of the problem by telling this person what I think they should be doing. You know, I, I could go on and on about this. There's a place here where there is no bookshop in the town. And you may think that's a very trivial example, but people who I work with there, they enjoy reading so not only there are no economic resources in the area, but also there are no symbolic and emotional resources that drive the community forward. And I, as a clinician who goes into this social field and works with these patients, I need to understand this. I do think that if we are 
separating people's beliefs, so-called beliefs and behaviors and attitudes and bodies from their context. I don't think we can say we are practicing collaborative medicine. I don't think we can say we are practicing person-centered care. So this is um, why I think what I, what I conceptualize as listening, as good listening, being able to really see the, ho the whole picture. We may not be able to change the world for that person, but we may be able not to add into the problem. And invariably, by listening so intently and purposefully, it's listening, but also you'll be asking questions which will be informed by the preceding listening. It's not, again, I, of course you weren't suggesting this, but it's not just you sitting there quietly having a particularly sensitive ear to these social phenomena, structures, all that stuff, but actually you engaging in dialogue with that person off the back of you exploring and them disclosing this stuff too. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I would be, I would be asking questions, you know, even as simple as, you know, how far is the closest hospital? Um, why, you know, what is getting, getting in the way of your recovery? What is getting in the way of you engaging with this treatment approach? Or, you know, so it, it's simply, I, I don't have like a formulaic set of questions I ask. It's about really being curious, I think, and about, um, bouncing the story back to the person and, and just, um, yeah, but I, I think I do have a bit of a, uh, you know, I share this particular example, but, you know, because I am also living in the area there, it means I'm also paying attention to what's happening around me, which means, which is why I always say how as clinicians, we are ethnographers. Yeah. I was going to say, I mean, you mentioned the word curiosity and it's just, I guess in a way, I'm coming back to the engaging with the knowledge outside the standard healthcare curriculum, poetry, humanities, art, all sorts of stuff, how that feeds your curiosity in, in a different way than, say, just knowing about biomedicalism or physiology or even kind of psychology or pain science. This seems to transcend e even that. I do think that uh, that when you are attending to the works of art, you do develop a certain uh, curiosity and the way you kind of, I think I mentioned this, the way you turn on your senses to uh, to be able to honor that experience. And you, became re you become really interested in everything, in shapes and forms and colors and repetitions and in, in symbols. And this is not to say that people are books or people are paintings, but you, yes, it, it is about translating that curiosity. I do think that this is where our education, it doesn't really, especially my education, I mean, my education was good in osteopathy, but it certainly wasn't um, portraying the complexity in this way. It doesn't, you know, our clinical education is not oriented towards structural competencies. It's oriented towards biological competencies and biomechanical and even psychological, actually, but not really structural and not, and not really social. You know, when did you ever have a, a case study where a patient was poor? You know, this just never happened. And I, I remember even being vocal about this as a student mm -hmm. and saying that the only way our education portrays complexity is through a masquerading red flag. So even the red flag, you know, even just the complexity belongs to a biomedical realm, you know, and this is of course very important. I'm not dissing this. This is very, very important, but it's certainly not the only complexity we are working with. We're both osteopaths. Both of us kind of relinquished our professional identities, but within 
at least within MSK practice, the hands appear to be pretty important. And I want to say many osteopaths say to me, and I suppose the notion of listening with hands or listening hands within the manual therapies is a pretty familiar phrase that putting hands on someone's body, whether it's the back of the head or the leg, is a form of listening. And I suppose I'm curious to know how that kind of listening fits into understanding the complex social background of people. Mm. And really, if there's any way that we can, if there's any other way to truly understand those social, those complex social backgrounds, other than actually listening with our listening organs, ears, and having a dialogue with someone. So what do you think? Where does, where does listening with hands come in to understanding the complex social backgrounds that people find themselves in? Mm. That's a really good question. And uh, I, well, let's just start by agreeing that touch matters. Let's do that, yeah. You know, it, it, it has been with us since the beginning of the humankind. And uh, if I think one thing COVID-19 crisis has taught us, that is that we need each other and we need human touch. We can't survive without it. I think the, the problem in osteopathy, and I certainly don't think that osteopathy is the only profession who, who does this, but the problem is not the touch itself. It's this, it's the epistemological assumptions and the language that comes with it and the um, reductionist and ignorant and paternalistic kind of culture that it reflects and perpetuates a notion such as, um, you know, you're about misaligned bodies and, and um, spines out of place and, you know, being able to just acquire knowledge by using your hand and, and things like that. I do think this can be sometimes ignorant uh, because we don't really know what touch means for that individual who we are working with. What does it represent? It may represent threat, not safety. And we, we may not know that if we don't communicate and attend to that person's narrative story, their, their existence. But I, I think there's also this underlying assumption that we are then working in a biomechanical vacuums, that people exist in a biomechanical vacuums or biological vacuums. And as a clinician, you are the holder of knowledge. You have the holy grail and nobody else has access to that knowledge. You have special hands, which are the traces, I think, of exceptionalism and individualism in our profession. You know, this we are self-made profession. I think this is not, I think this is profound in osteopathy, but I don't think this is unique to osteopathy at all. I do think every profession does this in a way. We, are, we all have our little windows through which we see the world. Because osteopathy is also a cultural system, just like medicine is, just like physiotherapy is, and as such is reflective of wider social processes and um, social structures that are going on around. So do you think that, I mean, I'm going to just ask you straight, do you think... and this is a too black and white answer, but does the hands, the listening with the hands add something to the broader listening or construction of the narrative? Or is it just, does it get in the way? Is it the case that it's actually detrimental to really understanding the person, their complex social narrative, story, background, all that stuff? I, I certainly don't think it, it gets in the way. I mean, I work in the pain service. We don't do manual therapy, but I do touch people. I do effective touch, even just to say to the person, 
you know, hey, you, I'm here with you. I'm going to accompany you on this journey. I think that social affective form of touch is really important. The problem is we often talk about touch from a very, um, again, reductionist mechanisms in the body going on when we touch people. And again, what you just said is uh, I'm going to acquire knowledge and this is the only way I can acquire knowledge is if I put my hands onto you. Yeah, not, not the only way, but the most effective way that actually it's better for me to put my hands on you. I find out more about my hands touching your leg or your back than I would do if I had a conversation with you. Yeah, well, maybe, okay, I have an idea. Maybe for people who think that way, we can uh, come up with a little case study and invite them to reflect on that. Good idea. I think, I think we should do that now. <laughs> so let's just, let's just imagine that um, a woman has just walked into your clinic room and she's an immigrant and she lives in Britain. And she, she's a single mother of three young children. She's unemployed. She's coming to see you because of her lower back pain and also fibromyalgia. And she, she's not working at the moment because she, she was working in Tesco, but they kind of fired her because they thought she was useless with her pain. And she's currently trying to claim some benefits, but people could, who do that, they don't really think that fibromyalgia is a thing which has been a constant theme in her healthcare journey because she's never really been, been believed and she's been told she's making things up and seeking attention. And this person is a, um, is a subject to immigrant prejudice and racism every single day of her life. So every single day of her life, somebody looks at her like she doesn't, like she's not equal, like her life doesn't matter. And people who do that are never really held accountable. And she wants you to help her. She wants you to help her to make sense of her situation. But she doesn't really want you to touch her because for her, touch, touch doesn't equal safety, it equals threat. So how are you going to support this person? And maybe we can just all reflect on this. <laughs> I do think that that's, again, coming back to the education. The problem is that our education doesn't construct case studies, vignettes, however you want to call them, with these colors, you know, they, they, it doesn't speak this language. And this is where I think, you know, things need to change. But for people who are listening with their hands, and that is the only way that they can work with somebody, perhaps they can reflect on this narrative. So given that, and, and there are gradations, I think, within osteopathy about the value of hands, but they, they seem to be, hands are important to most osteopaths. And given your, your current clinical role as a pain clinician in a multidisciplinary environment. How did you, I suppose, find your way into your current role? And what were some of the challenges and barriers that you maybe came up against? Yeah, thank you for asking me that because I really feel strongly about um, this question. And I already said how when I finished my uni, which really was, wasn't that long ago, I, I was on a mission to find myself a way into the pain service because I've always wanted to do that. And I also wanted to work with people who can't afford private practices. And this journey of finding my way into the pain service was, you know, was a saga in itself. And because as you say, historically osteopaths are not part of the pain services. And I have been told that multiple times, which yeah, wasn't always really nice. And 
up until last summer when there was this advert on NHS website about the pain service in Lincolnshire, which I applied straight straight away. And this was really the first time where I, you know, the whole experience was different because it was the first time I felt seen as a person, as a somebody who you know, where when I said, you know, I really want to work work here, I really want this opportunity more than anything. I am willing to learn, I'm willing to hold myself accountable, where I felt I felt truly seen. And this shouldn't be really shocking, but it kind it kind of was shocking because up until that point, it was always being seen through the boxes of being an osteopath and being a manual therapist and being a new graduate and being a foreigner and osteopaths don't belong to the pain services. And I really think that we should be less profession rigid and profession specific rigid and qualified experience specific rigid because there are so many clinicians out there who are not applying for the dream job because of these rigid structures we have in place. And whilst I fully acknowledge that pain is is a specialist field and you really have to have the knowledge, it's not the only skill you need to have. People are not coming into your clinical, um, your, sorry, your interview room like a blank slate, like a tabula rasa. They bring their perspectives, their life experience, their histories. And these are really powerful things. When I, when I think about my job, when I, when I work with people, um, in East Lincolnshire where, you know, some people are just so disabled by their pain. And they live in this part of the county where, where you know, it's it's bereft of resources, and and we're trying to somehow together reimagine something different in their life. You know, I I go back to my literary imagination days. I go back to my life experience of moving countries as a great example of life adaptation. And I'm I'm, I'm not saying this to to make myself sound special. I'm saying because I think there are so many clinicians out there, really good clinicians, osteopaths, non-osteopaths, MSK therapists, rehabilitation therapists who are yeah, we're not applying for the dream job because of this. And I really hope that we can start reimagining how we go on about employing people. Sanya, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. It's good to be here. If you enjoyed this podcast, visit www.wordsmatter-education.com for all the show notes, resources, and blogs. And check out the online course in language and communication in relation to back pain. And I'll see you next time.